0: Hello, good evening, and welcome to Seascapes. On tonight's programme, a young couple living the dream, sailing the Mediterranean, and the story of the Isolde lightship, sunk by a German bomber off the Irish coast. Caitlin and Andrew O'Shea are living the dream. Life at the moment, and for years to come, is cruising the world on their refurbished 35-foot westerly yacht, the Caitlin. The couple left can last July. They plan to spend the next few years sailing around. And I caught up with them today from the Balearic Islands after nearly a year on board. Caitlin first told me how this adventure all started.
1: Well, I met Andrew in Australia, um... We were out one night at a bar and I came across this Irish guy who came up to me and introduced himself and as part of the conversation he said one day he wants to sail around the world. I thought that was pretty cool. And It's a pretty good line. Yeah, it did did well. Um, And a couple of years later we kind of decided that we'd start sort of making plans to actually make that sort of happen.
0: When did you start planning this trip?
1: Oh, well, like we discussed it right back at the beginning, but then kind of, you know, obviously financially, you have to make plans as to how you're going to afford all that. Um, how are you going to go away? How are you going to quit your jobs? Probably around eight years ago, we sort of made plans to buy some sort of property that we could hopefully rent out and um, use those funds to fund being away. So that's what we did about eight years ago. Well, in the recession, we bought a cottage which we renovated from Derelict. And um, now that is our primary sort of finance for while we're away. Be it not that much to actually live on, but it definitely makes it makes it all the difference um, being able to have that continuous money coming in.
0: Andrew, tell me then something about the boat. You've called it after Caitlin. Uh,
2: I thought I'd just kind of honour her by calling the boat after uh, Caitlin. The boat itself, I suppose we did an awful lot of looking online and we looked at a couple of boats beforehand and to be honest uh, they were really really rough you know so this one was uh, well cared for be it all the equipment was out of date but at this stage now uh, we've nearly all the equipment on the boat is replaced so i mean it's it's pretty comfortable you know with everything you know from microwave fridge hot shower television to all the safety gear you could imagine. We've got special water water filtration systems. We can wash the dishes with salt water. And, yeah, it's 34 feet long. And I suppose for that, it's got about as much crammed into it as you could, you know. Yeah. How
0: long then did it take you to fit her out before you decided she was ready to go?
2: Last year, there was a huge amount of work went into it. So we've had her for three years. But the first two years, uh, I was working all the hours I had. a uh, if it wasn't at work, it was renovating our house, you know. So our, our house was completely derelict and all the money was going into the house. So we literally had it as a motorboat for one season because um, it was in the back burner. So it was really last year, there was a huge amount of work that went into. My my father actually came down a lot and uh, he helped me. We did the standing rigging ourselves. Uh, we put a new a brand new engine this winter, actually. It's a lifeboat engine. A lot of the big ticket stuff, we did anti-osmosis treatment, uh, last winter as well in
0: Spain, Caitlin. Mm-hmm. You left. You went. Started off last July. You left from Kinsale. You went out to Spain first. I think four days. Yeah, My experience we, that we can found, be a pretty rough journey.
1: We didn't leave in the best of weather, but with the lockdown and everything, we were so scared. After our plan of originally leaving in 2020, that we would just get stuck in Ireland for another year or something. So we just wanted to go, and um, we just went for it. And it was a bit rolly. Um, I was sick for the whole time. Just to probably sum it up, I ate a pack of noodles for the three and a half days.
0: You, you spent some of the last year going right down through Portugal.
1: We did, yeah. So from the north of Spain, we travelled down the Atlantic coast and then into the Algarve, which was beautiful. We visited some places. Alvor was one of our favourites, a very sheltered sort of ria that's off the Algarve. Mao and then we continued from Portugal. We went to onto the Gibraltar Strait, so um, and we were in Gibraltar for a few weeks as well. Um, I guess in the end, for us, the dream was always these turquoise blue waters and warmer weather, and um, as much as the Atlantic coast is beautiful in its own right, uh, we were kind of pushing, and then also having left later in the year, we were just pushing to get to a really good place that we could be for winter and um, closer to being in the Med.
0: And where did you overwinter?
1: El Miramar in uh, Andalusia, uh, in Spain, south
0: of Spain. Did you do a big jump to go around Gibraltar?
1: Uh, No, not really. We're in Barbada, Barbada, I think it's called. Um, And we waited there for the right um, tides and weather. And we actually... Obviously, you hear all these terrible stories about Gibraltar Strait. So when we went through, there was actually no wind. So we didn't get to sail.
2: The water was like glass and the engine idling in gear. We were doing about eight knots with the tide bringing us through. And we just landed uh, on the other side just uh, just as the tides were changing again. So it was, it was perfect, perfect timing. Uh, after doing, perfect yeah. timing, yeah, definitely.
0: Did you work on the boat? Did you live on the boat over winter? What did you do?
2: Uh, We did live on the boat, um, so we were supposed to go out to Australia, but the flights got cancelled twice, actually. We rebooked them and they got cancelled again. Uh, We had the boat already taken out of the water, so we had three or four months there that we were supposed to be away. That we said, right, well, we're not wasting the time, so uh, we just uh, got stuck into projects for that time, you know.
0: And did you live on board?
2: Uh we did. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, yard life, we call it the dark side, you know, uh, it's uh, it's not perfect, you know, because uh, like there are showers and facilities in the yard. So uh, you need to use them, you know, but yeah, of course, you got to go off the boat to go to the loo, you know. Um, it's
1: funny what you uh, get used to. That's all yeah, I can say, to the, be honest.
2: <laughs> to be honest, there's <laughs> sailing, uh, as you know yourself, it's the ups and downs you know like bits that aren't enjoyable i'm able to kind of discard them because i know when it's good it's really really good and uh, when it's tough it's really really tough you know like um uh, yeah these, these tough passages and stuff like that are uh an endurance you know when everyone's sick and you know
1: <laughs> cold.
2: yeah you know the autopilot's not working so you have to hand steer for 24 hours and it's black dark, so you can't see where you're going. So you're trying to trying to hold the course. You're yeah, nearly going around in circles. <laughs> um, so, you know, like it, it can get really tough. But then you land into a place, you see a new place. You've forgotten yeah. about all the hardship and it's all, uh, it again. and it's all worth it again. And of course, some of the passages are, I mean, our passage over here to Forman was was absolutely beautiful.
0: But yeah. after your long winter, you're back in the good times now again. When did you set off again?
1: About two weeks ago, I think.
2: Yeah, maybe, yeah, three, 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 three weeks at the stage, maybe, yeah. So where are you now? So it's Formentera where we are now. Which um, is in
1: the Balearic Islands, In yeah. the
2: Balearic Islands, yeah. So it's, I mean, we can, you know, we can see Ibiza from uh, where we're anchored and it's kind of just uh, moving around the island, whichever uh, side is giving you shelter from the swell, you know, so... Um, So we started on one side of the island and now we're around the other side. And we've got some friends anchored next to us um, that we've been hanging out with kind of since Portugal. And there's another two boats that are arriving today that they were all in Al Miramar for the whole time. Actually, all of them we'd we'd met previous to going there. So uh, we've pretty tight-knit social group which is pretty cool to little
1: community
2: yeah Yeah. little community you you could do this on a very very small budget if you weren't plowing money into the boat which you don't have to a lot of things are for comfort and you know to make things work smoother uh but to have an extra little bit so that you can go out go out for you know uh coffee dessert ice cream that kind of thing it just makes it a lot more enjoyable you know i know some people do it on, like absolute peanuts i've heard of people cruising on 500 euros a month you know to do that of course they can't you know they can't do the socializing they can't go to a restaurant or any of that whereas if you know if you're willing to spend like 1500 a month or something uh, most couples tend to be between 1500 and 2000 and at that you can you can really uh, have a comfortable enough lifestyle uh, for a couple you know
0: so people listening to you who might think be hugely envious you don't have to be rich
1: no not at all it's it's completely within uh the decisions that you make as to what you need you obviously need some sort of a boat that's going to be able to get you around safely but even that is sort of left up to the person that's in the boat that makes that decision like we've seen you know there's 25 foot boats getting around solo sailors and you know living on next to nothing and then there's people that feel they need a 45 foot boat with absolutely everything on it and go out for dinner three times a week and all that sort of stuff
0: i think i'd be in the latter category myself Uh,
1: yeah yeah well i guess you know things do get to that point when you know um You know, if we were to continue doing this over, say, a decade or something like that, then we would probably be thinking maybe a bigger boat would be um, better for us. Like, if it's your home long term, then of course. But I guess at this point, beginning, you don't even know how long you're going to, you know, sustain this sort of a lifestyle. Like, it is amazing, but there are a lot of learnings and changes you have to make. yeah, there's a lot to learn, and we're enjoying learning it, but it, it can be quite challenging at times, especially for me. I I, um, I I have a lot to learn in comparison to Andrew. Andrew definitely knows a lot more than me. So um,
2: It, it takes a couple of years to get to know your boat as well. Mm. Um, you need to know where every single cable is going, every pipe, all the weak points, all that. Uh, you don't have to, but if you do know that, you've got a huge amount of confidence. So
0: what's the plan
2: next? So I suppose we're kind of thinking the Balearic Islands for, you see with the PCR tests, now we nearly want to get value out of them because we have to do the tests every time we move somewhere, you know. Um, so we'll probably stick a couple of months here and then Sardinia maybe and hopefully onto Corsica and possibly wintering in Malta. Our plans change like the wind, you know, we could as easily end up just seeing a nice passage for, you know, if the wind was... Uh, behind us to take us down to Greece or something like that. Uh, we might just decide to pull up the anchor and do it. You know, but um, our, our vague plan is to to spend this summer uh, between uh, the islands. Yeah.
0: Will you cross the Atlantic?
2: That is the plan. Yeah, yeah. We kind of thought if we spent this season as far as Malta, then next season uh, down around Greece and that kind of area, and then then at the end of that season start heading west um, across the Atlantic. So, yeah, whether we take a pause and go back to Ireland for a little bit in between or not is uh, an unknown. But, I mean, definitely the boat, boat, there's too much gone into the boat to not get the value out of it, you know. And I think the first year, hands down, is the most challenging. The second year would be far, far easier because the work is done a lot of the learning is learnt and all that. And year on year, it's all easier. It's it's cheaper, uh, less stressful, and uh, your living situation's better because, you know...
0: You've adjusted. Because and of- you don't have a deadline. You can keep going for a good few years. There's no deadline. We could be doing this
2: forever if we want it's going to you know it's it's whatever we feel like doing you know um, if we, if we yeah.
1: continue to enjoy it and it's what makes us happy then we'll probably continue to do it because it is a beautiful lifestyle it's the reason why we put the hard work in the beginning to get the house done you know because we knew that if we did that we would at least be able to live off yeah. that as long as we have a tenant obviously
0: okay um, but, you, you've yeah. got a facebook page yeah. and an instagram account that people can follow your progress if they want just tell me a bit about that
1: um so we started off with Instagram and um it was kind of just like a way of documenting our travels, you know for ourselves and also in the hope of maybe meeting people our own age that are doing the same thing, um, which to be honest, has worked out really well like we've as I, uh, as Andrew mentioned there in El Miramar, there was about six different boats with um, couples that were in our age group, so in the sort of between the late 20s to early 40s, which, you know, is really nice to be able to hang out with people your own age with the same ideas of life, I guess, um, and like-minded thoughts,
2: Um and we we hang around with lots of older people too, don't get of course. but it's just that the fear was that everyone would be retired and older. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes. And the Instagram was the key to to
1: connecting uh, up with younger people. Because yeah. the
2: younger people are the minority really out yes, here. Um, definitely.
1: but we would like to show um I guess people that find this lifestyle interesting, that it's doable, you know, in hope that we might inspire maybe some other people to get into it because it's
2: it's a great way of living. Yeah, no, if, I mean, if we can say hello to my granny, Lillian
0: O'Shea, because I know she would be listening. And hi to
1: everyone else in Ireland as well. Yeah,
0: yeah. We
1: miss you all.
0: family, And I think we'll check in on Caitlin and Andrew later in the year to see where they've got to. If you want to follow their progress, or maybe you want to head off into the sunset yourself, their Facebook and Instagram page is called A Nautical Change. Alicia Rushby never met her grandfather, William, he died at the age of 43 when the lightship on which he was a crew, the Isolde, was sunk by a German bomber off the southeast coast of Ireland just over 80 years ago. Alicia is undertaking research at the University of Bedfordshire on the impact an incident like this can have on families, especially if the bodies are not recovered, and to learn more of her grandfather. She is brought to Lorna Siggins for seascapes.
3: Many families and friends who have lost loved ones to the sea or those who have family members who have gone missing, live with the additional trauma of ambiguous loss, as in when no body has been recovered. Elisa Rushby is researching the impact of this on families and how it can pass down generations. When the Isolde lightship was sunk by a German bomber off the southeast coast over 80 years ago, six men on board died, Patrick Dunn, James Hayden, Patrick Short, William Holland, Patrick Farrell, and her grandfather, William Rushby. And the reason I've been interested in this, uh, not just as a as a writer, is because I'm the granddaughter of one of the people that was killed that day, a seaman called uh, William Rushby. And for a long time, I've been fascinated about the sinking, and also about the legacy of what it does when there is no body to mourn. And that's really covered by the term ambiguous loss. And and that could be somebody who was killed in action, or maybe somebody who was murdered and the grave was never found. And ambiguous loss is a big thing because in Irish society, I think we're we're very focused on the body. You know, we have a wake, we go and see the remains. We, we focus very much on the earthly part of, of that person who was with us. But for the older families, sadly, the bodies were never found. What I've been doing is looking at how that stalls the grief process. Just to give you a bit of an idea, on the 19th of December, 1940, the Essex older set out from Wexford, and it was going on a very routine trip. It was going to deliver reliefs to the barrels and Connyberg light lightships. Only, it never really got there. At that time, because France had fallen, Germany was sending an awful lot of planes down that stretch of water. When they spotted a British ship, because although. We would call it the Irish Lights, and we would think of the crew as being predominantly Irish. It was British registered. For them, it was fair game to bomb it. They flew over quite low, I mean, literally almost as as high as the telegraph um, on the the ship. And they flew over four times, and somewhere in all of that, six men were killed, tragically. Twenty-eight men made it back to Kilmore Quay, which was amazing. But it's a tragedy that's kind of always stayed with me and my family. I never knew my grandfather. I wasn't born until the 60s. But, you know, there'd be times growing up he would always feel like he was there, that he had never really left my grandmother. I just wanted to say what else happened that day, and that it was the week before Christmas. And for someone like my grandmother, even in less commercial times, her head was probably just filled with Christmas. And the last thing she needed was my teenage dad having a bit of a growth spurt there and needing a new pair of shoes. So she went into Dunleary, um, into Sean McManus, which is actually a porn office, and was buying him shoes or boots when a lady came rushing in and said, your man's been killed on the Isolde. And that was kind of the first she knew about it. And so from that moment where up until now she's probably thinking about, you know, do I have have enough meat to go round or something? um, Her mind was very much in a tailspin and she spent the rest of the day trying to find out information. So what she was told by the Irish lights and the other women were also told was that they were to go to Dunleary Station for the Wexford train that evening. And if the husband was on the Wexford train, they still had a husband. And if he didn't, they were widowed. I've often thought about that scene, um, of what that must have looked like. I mean, I, I know that station very, very well. All of those women and members of their family with them, waiting on a very dark December night, waiting for that train, looking for signs of it, maybe seeing the steam as it was coming along the coast, and knowing that the fate of their marriage rested on the opening of a door of that one of those compartments and the husband getting out, that there were six women left standing. And I wondered what went through their minds. Did they think, oh, maybe he's in hospital in Wexford. Maybe he's on the next train up and just trying to get news of what had happened. I can't imagine what that first Christmas was like. And I must admit, although my dad talked a lot about what happened that day, We never really discussed that first Christmas, but I think that must have been very hard. I've been doing some interviews. I've been very fortunate. I put a bit of a shout out on a a local page for Dunneary, And some wonderful people have come forward, both survivor families and also families of those who were lost. And I can't thank them enough for their kindness. They've been very gracious and very giving both in their time, but also in giving the memories of people they've loved. And in each of the interviews, there's been a moment where the hair really does stand up on the back of your neck. And I think one of those was from one of the survivor's daughters. I haven't asked if I can use her name, so if, if I can just call her that. Um, initially, it was thought that her father was lost during the sinking. And with that in mind, his fiance walked somewhat wearily back from her, would have been future mother-in-law's house. And then she heard footsteps behind her as she's walking along the Metals in Dun It was a very distinctive footsteps because her fiancé had quite flat feet. When she turned and she saw him, she honestly thought that he was a ghost. But, you know, happy endings all round. He managed to persuade her that he wasn't a ghost and they had a very long and happy marriage. But the sort of bittersweet element to the story is that it wasn't him who died. It was his best friend. His best friend was the guy who had only been married for a year. So he thought that he would go and try and make it all right with the guy's widow. You know, I think he he felt he had to express something, but she wouldn't see him that story struck me as very poignant. There's also another story where one of the guys who died basically told one of the survivors, you know, you need to jump over the side of the ship. And this bloke did. And he's in the water looking up when the next bomb hits and it hits exactly where they were standing. I've I've also received some great help there from Dr. Michael Kennedy, who's executive editor of the Royal Irish Academy. I'm very aware that their bodies were never found. And as I say, this leads into ambiguous loss. But I was aware that there was a database of the many people who were washed up during the emergency around the coast of Ireland. And he very kindly sent it to me and I was able to search this to see whether there were any potential candidates for the Isolder, given that it had only gone down three miles off the coast. But sadly I couldn't find any. But as a document, you know, you'd never think an Excel spreadsheet could be so emotional when you see the personal effects that were found on individuals or maybe a tattoo or something that still made them human. I'm still looking out for descendants of people who were on the Isolde. As I say, I've been very lucky so far. I've even interviewed the acting captain's grandson, who's a great character to interview. But, you know, if you are one of those families and you'd like to talk to me, I'd love it if you'd get in touch. The other thing that made this much harder was it was never in the newspaper. in in not even one line, as if it didn't happen. And it only finally made the newspapers in 1945. And this was due to wartime censorship. Um, The Isolde had been out to the Tuscar Rock, um, doing again, doing reliefs, and a bombing had taken place. So, you know, marking it lighthouse service up the side was a sort of last ditch attempt to sort of say, don't hit us. They, they couldn't do anything about which flag they had to fly because the Irish lights, the headquarters for that was in Berkeley Square in London. Another ship, which was Irish registered, the Lalarron, the same Condor that um, got the Isolde flew over that earlier in the day and they didn't touch it. So it, it was, you know it was a legitimate target, but with with Irishmen on board. The 80th anniversary of the Isalda's sinking was marked last December by a wreath laying at sea by the Commissioners of Irish Lights ship Grania Whale and the release of a video which can be seen on YouTube. Um, One of the things that came out of that video, um, somewhere in their archives, they had dug up a picture of some men on the deck. And, you know, initially when I saw it, it it was all very quick and I must have watched the video over and over. And then I paused it and I could actually see it was my grandfather. And it was a very informal picture of him. He was laughing. He was engaging with another crew member. And for me, that was just incredible. I think he was about 21 when he got married. You know, who can turn down a Dunleary girl? He came from Grimsby, came to Ireland and, and lived the rest of his life there. He was very, very happy. She still had his last letter. And I remember when I was a child, her showing it to me. And, you know, it started my darling Elizabeth. But one thing I found... From all of the interviews I've done, I I wondered what kind of men these were going to be. And, you know, you're quite prepared for maybe some people maybe not being very nice or something. But what a bunch of hardworking, decent family men. They were incredible.
0: And that was Alicia Rushby speaking about the Isolde Lightship sinking back in 1940. If you want to contact her, you can get her through the Commissioner of Irish Lights, Harbour Road, Dun or by email at info at irishlights.ie. We heard the sad news during the week of the death of Sadie Phelan, who was president of the Wicklow Sailing Club since 2011. She was a key member of the Round Ireland organising team, and she was no stranger to the programme. Our thoughts are with her family at this time. And that's it for Seascapes for this week. We're back at the same time next Friday. Everything on the programme is podcast. It's on our website, rte.ie slash seascapes. If you want to contact me or the programme, the email is seascapes at rte.ie. Hopefully we'll all get nearer or on water over the next week. And if you do, stay safe.
2: Seascapes is presented and produced by Fergal Keane.